Here, here's what I decided. I read the readings, and uh, they're all important, and they provide some opportunities to talk about uh, a, two or three things, or maybe ask two or three questions. Do you believe that uh, practical wisdom, human wisdom, uh, is of some spiritual value with regard to understanding it as a distillation of human experience? And if so, maybe that will give us some support for why the wisdom literature is in the Hebrew Bible. I'll say more about that in a minute. The next question is, uh, how do we understand these days the complexity of the overarching theme of all three readings today, which is uh, uh, being concerned about the poor. But really implicit in these readings has something to do with how you and I deal with people different from us in the communities in, that are intentional that we're part of. And how do we, because of our tendency to hang around people like ourselves, how do we understand what it means when we say we need to be concerned about people that are different? Not just people who are maybe economically disadvantaged, but different and not like us. And in the epistle for, uh, from James today, that is taken up uh, in a substantial way. And then in the gospel, we have two healing stories, which at, the first one asks the question that I've always been interested in and something that occupied uh, a fair amount of writing in the early Christian church, and that was, did Jesus uh, go through some form of development in his understanding of his mission and ministry? Because there's a species of thinking in Christianity that says, well, it was all delivered to him neat, or he understood neat, you know, he was the son of God, so what he was here to do was all foretold. You read in John's Gospel, it's literally God walking around on the earth, right? So if that's so, it would appear that he would have been, if he's omnipotent, if he's omnipotent omniscient, and immortal, he would know exactly what he was doing. But stories like today from the Gospel give us an indication that maybe like every human being, which he was also, uh, he went through some form of a development in the understanding of who his message was for. So we need to talk a little bit about that and maybe connect it to our understanding of our own development in terms of understanding our own personal mission in religious and spiritual terms, but in your own life and how you understand yourself and what it is that you think you should be doing. I don't get a chance to preach on Proverbs very much because we don't read too much about Proverbs. I do remember as a, as a young boy being at one of my friend's houses for dinner when his father was in his cups and read from the book of Proverbs that section on, the, on what a good wife is. <laughs> and I suspect it had something to do with uh, the fact that he knew his wife was long-suffering. And, uh, you know, he read this, but I felt a little bit ill at ease at the dining room table when that got trotted out. Um, since then, as a pastor, I have heard that this has been done in more than one household. <laughs> so it's something that is not an uncommon practice or was maybe a generation or two ago. The book of Proverbs is the oldest piece 
of wisdom literature in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And there is a whole section in the Old Testament that we call the wisdom literature. And also in this little section of books that Episcopalians read and Roman Catholics read and Eastern Orthodox read, which we call the Apocrypha, but it also is wisdom literature in, in large part. And what that means is that it's, a, it's about practical ethics. And it's not, it doesn't on first glance appear to have much religious significance. So one could ask, why is Proverbs there? Well, I expect it is because the attribution of authorship in the book is to King Solomon. King Solomon, son of David. So it says something about these short uh, proverbs or aphorisms were, are attributed to his authorship by and large. And so maybe it's because of who it's supposed to be in the tradition that it gets into the canon when the rabbis debated and decided what was going to be in the old, what we now call the Old Testament. You know, the real drive, this is off the subject, but it'll serve the purpose uh, as some 3995 material. The development of the canon of the Old Testament, that's the, the technical word for what the books are that we say are sacred, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The development of the canon actually in Judaism and in Christianity influenced each other. Because what, what happened when uh, people began to decide about the New Testament as sacred literature, there were some Jews who said under no circumstances are these books going to be read in synagogues anymore. And under no circumstances are we going to include them in our sacred literature. Well then, some of the rabbis said, what are we going to do about deciding this? Well, let's have a meeting and begin to talk about it. What we're going to include in our canon of sacred literature after the Torah, the first five books, what else is going to count in them? So the wisdom literature began to be uh, something thought of as part of all of this, um, and Proverbs is part of that. I believe that practical wisdom, you've heard me say this to you before, practical wisdom serves a very godly function. Because if we follow on what my, the major themes of my preaching, you know that I believe that uh, the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. So spirituality is life. And that means learning how to live life in some effective way in your relationship to God and in your relationship to other people and your effectiveness and pursuit of excellence in your life and work is part, has deep religious significance. So when we read short proverbs and proverbs about uh, how to live and reason and common sense, maybe those are things that commend to people and maybe they help transform us into better human beings and maybe that's a very, very godly undertaking because when we do that and we become the human beings that we're called to be, we fill out more fully being made in God's image. So Proverbs today is in these readings because particularly the concluding line has something to do with uh, the importance of looking after the poor. Here's the thing. Uh, in Proverbs, you have two views advanced. One is that there are some practical ways to live that you should cultivate, and any sensible person will do these things. 
But the other thing to say is, and it also says, if you don't do these things, the consequences will be clear. To sort of insert a mixed uh, thing here, there are karmic forces that get released from bad behavior or behavior that isn't commonsensical that produce difficulties for you, right? <coughs> there is truth too, and it says so, that Jesus says it in the Gospels, you reap what you sow. So you let, you let go forces uh, in the world through uh, not exercising wisdom, practical wisdom, that can cause difficulties, you know? And all of us need to struggle with this on a daily basis. So Proverbs sets us up for this idea. Maybe, too, in terms of practical wisdom, it gives us some idea about what it means uh, in, in practical terms about how we deal with people on the margins and how we understand our common life and how Jesus was involved in all of this and beginning to transform the outlook of the people that he was uh, part of in his, in his uh, emergence as a spiritual leader or a, a sage. Actually, some people would have referred to Jesus in his own language as a mashal. It's said in other places, which means a teacher of wisdom. So wisdom is something that uh, looms large even in the ministry of Jesus. The epistle of James is a general letter. It's not clear really who wrote it. It's attributed to James. Uh, it is a general ethical exhortation that appears to have Jewish Christian origins. This is all the biblical scholarship behind this. And it's hard to tell what really where it's from because it could be applied to a number of Christian communities during the time <coughs> in which it was written and the time in which it's dated. And why this is important is that it appears that the epistle of James is addressing as an ethical exhortation, pastoral realities that are on the ground in the various Christian churches throughout the ancient Near East. And one of the things that, bec that becomes clear is that even in Christian communities, we have you know, the usual human practice of people who are well-heeled and who are prosperous and who are well-connected generally tend to be deferred to. And so in the assembly, which is the, the place where people come to worship, uh, for example, the people who are that category that I just mentioned usually have a prominent place and are treated with some deference. And those who are on the margins or who are poor are not. And they're not paid attention to, you know? Now, I think this has something to do with understanding in our own time, not the sort of gross differences between people who are abjectly poor and people who aren't, and how all that gets worked out. Most people know that there needs to be some concern about that. But I expect that the real issue is, how do we deal emotionally and uh, spiritually and intellectually with being around people that are different than we are? It's not easy. Particularly because uh, the world views are different, particularly because you, there's all kinds of uh, emotions that come into play in this thing. And it's no different today than it was then. 
You know, there's a big mistake that we often make because there are clearly major differences between living in, the, in, in Palestine in the first century CE and living in the world today in 2009. But there are a lot of things that haven't changed. And it would be a mistake to assume that people who lived at the time of the writing of James didn't understand this kind of awkwardness, even in what appears to be a society far more rigid you know, and defined, it's still there then to, they know that this is something that is not right and it doesn't fit. And so the, the writer is speaking about the necessity to be concerned uh, about people who are not just the ones who were well healed that could perhaps advance you, that perhaps could benefit you, that perhaps could keep you from harm and to pay attention to other people, to take other people seriously in some way. Now there's a, a classical uh, line in here, or a little short paragraph that I'll read. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Martin Luther did not like this passage. In fact, at one point in his writings, he refers to the epistle of James as a right strawry epistle. And if he had been king for a day, he would have taken it out of the New Testament canon because it said uh, something that he believed was not right. And that is, is that it's your faith that saves you and not your works. But really, if we read that, does it, is it an either or proposition? It isn't, I don't think. It says that we need to not just talk the talk, but we need to walk the walk. And we need to find the ways and the means uh, to do that. You know, when I was at the general convention, one of the things that made me proud to be an Episcopalian was that in many places and in many instances, there is some real strides being made intentionally by local Christian communities in trying to become more inclusive and faithful to the baptismal covenant and understanding that the um, call that the gospel makes to each of us is to uh, be welcoming and hospitable and generous. And that that is the thing that may be the start of how we understand this. It doesn't minimize the difficulties that all of us feel being around people whose circumstances are so different from our own. You know, I, when I was a kid, I'm just trying to think, this popped into my head. I suspect, I know from my mother, being around people who, whose educational level was not the same as hers was hard. You know? And of course, she believed like most people, that education was the answer to everything. Maybe some of you believe that too. It, it, it's sure a good idea, don't you think? But at the same time, it was hard because what kind of conversation are you gonna have about what and you know, how do you do this? And actually, what you discover is that there's plenty to talk about. 
you know, we're human beings. We all have a lot of things in common, and we learn a lot of things. So I think that the epistle of James is talking about how we need to, to work on that in spiritual terms and to modify uh, our behavior. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is confronted with this himself today in the first story. There are two healing stories here that are put together. The one, the last one that I'm going to talk about is unique to Mark's gospel. But the Syrophoenician woman, she's described differently as a Canaanite in other God and so on. But it's the same story told by Matthew or by Luke. But Mark tells this story about a woman who comes to Jesus and tells him that her daughter is dying. And the story is clear that she is not a Jew. She is a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile. Now, the people who are reading this gospel or listening to it for the first time are dealing with this message of Jesus is for the people of the covenant, not anybody else, not Gentiles. Right? The Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus, and he's pretty abrupt with her. In fact, it's a pretty big discount. You know, I always think about the Matthean version, so it's hard for me. But uh, you know, uh, Jesus says something to her like, "He's come to save the lost children of Israel, and uh, not cast the bread before dogs." And she says to him, you know, uh, even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. She's, she's humble, but persistent. And it's her persistence that changes him. And he says, uh, because of this, your daughter is going to be healed. Go home and she'll be fine. Now, Mark has arranged this in a very important way. Jesus, because of the, the, the issues of Mark's time, of the, of the movement now towards the inclusion of Gentiles and all of these things, Jesus does not go to this little girl to heal her. He heals her from afar. It's a telegraphed healing. So he doesn't have to go get in there with the Gentiles and unclean people. Okay? We're dealing now with that whole issue of people who aren't of, of, of purity laws and all of that kind of business. So the people who first read this thought, oh, well, I guess that makes me feel a little better. At least he didn't go there. <laughs> but when I read it, I'm thinking to myself, what was going on with Jesus? What was he thinking about? You know, we have, an, we have examples earlier of his own thinking about this. If you think along the lines of some biblical scholarship that Jesus was a follower of John the Baptist, he was related to him in the biblical witness, a cousin. Uh, and he then gets baptized by John the Baptist. His ministry takes a left turn after his baptism. And he begins to go out and do... and preach and teach and do things differently than John the Baptist. 
his ministry undergoes a change. So that means that he understood his messiahship and what his role in the world was uh, in a different way. Some people say, how God is God? How can he do that? He should have one way, right? But it seems to me that uh, this idea humanizes Jesus more and allows us to appropriate this story in a way that's deeply personal because we know that in our own lives, our own self-understanding about our vocation and who we are and how we live and what we should do has and will undergo changes continuously. Even if we resist them and don't like them, that they're present and we have to do this. And Jesus shows at least some corrigibility in this regard to begin to do this. And he, I believe, comes to see something that he sees clearly in his own sacred literature, which is that through his ministry, he is making present what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the minor prophets had said in the past, that through him, God's invitation, which has always existed to invite everyone in to God's saving embrace is being made present through him and his words and works. And so that the Christian message has something to do with full inclusion, with we're all at the table together, even people that are not like us, and even people that are very difficult to be around or hard to be around because we just simply don't know what to do. And so the Syrophoenician woman stands for him as some form of a goad to begin to see and change his, his way of operating, the way his ministry is now going to take shape. The healing story that's attached after this of him healing the man who was deaf and dumb, there are two healing stories in Mark's gospel that are unique to Mark's gospel. This is one of them. And the reason they're unique is because they involve in the process of the healing a manipulation. He takes the guy aside and he sticks his fingers in his ears and he spits on his tongue and says, be open, gross, right? <laughs> well, here's the thing. In the time of Jesus, there were a lot of wandering healers and most of the wandering healers healed by manipulation. And I think that the later gospel writers wanted Jesus to be seen as a healer, the most, one of the most widely attested facts about his ministry. But they wanted him to heal people through his word. Be healed. In some of these television evangelists, you see, though, manipulation brought into play. And they probably used the biblical support for the Mark and healing story for doing that. And the saying of the Aramaic word, Ephatha, right? So you even hear that. I've seen that on some television, some of these healing things. Ephatha, you know? So we're, we're, we're doing this from, and, and receiving some biblical support for this kind of thing. Well, Mark really isn't interested in this other than reporting what he's received in the tradition from the eyewitnesses or he himself uh, in Jesus' ministry that there was manipulation that happened and he's not shying away from it. 
But he has another point because this particular healing, all the healings are there for a reason beyond the healing themselves. The healing is almost incidental to the reason. And what is operating here is that this man could now hear and he could now see. And if he stands for a model of the community who hears the word and now speaks it to other people, we see that through this healing process of the presence of Jesus, he has brought clarity to people in terms of hearing the message. In all of its complexity that I've talked about earlier in my sermon, which is how we treat one another, how we understand the importance of practical wisdom, how we see the fullness of Jesus' ministry beyond merely miracle stories and wonder working, that somehow people hear it and they get it, and then they can speak it. And this man is a dramatic example through the healing who was able to do it. And so the community that first heard this story heard a story now about how <laughs> the healing power of God is present in such a way as to bring clarity of speech to each of us and clarity of listening and understanding. So it has something to do with that. So this week, um, maybe the assignment is to uh, think about all the practical wisdom that you have that's important and that you can share with people. Think about um, working on how to be around people different. Than, you know, when I say this, preachers have a, a real tendency to give uh, people the idea that uh, when we need to be concerned for the poor or when we need to transform our thinking or behavior in some area, it needs to be heroic. It has to be a heroic undertaking. And yes, it does in certain circumstances and at certain times. There's no question. But most of the time, God's work is done in the ordinary, in the commonplace. And uh, Clint Fowler, the priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, used to say, you know, we Christians are inchers. That's how we make the progress. So when I say that about uh, these things, uh, it's, it's, it's small work as the main continuous thing the generous impulse being made manifest with other people. The ability to take other people seriously, particularly those who are different. And I guess the greatest test for each of us always is when we're the most distracted, uh, worried and nervous, uh, busy, that it's the hardest to do. And so it's when we make some progress in that area that we uh, maybe are, are doing God's work. And finally, uh, to see that in your own life, it's okay to go through uh, the process of, the, of transformation with regard to how you see yourself and your outlook and what, what it is you're supposed to be doing, that the Savior of the world did that. You know, in the first four centuries, there was a huge amount of conversation, a lot of writing, uh, about whether or not Jesus as a child went through a moral development. You know, I mean, if you say he's God, the son of God, I mean, he was born, and even as a little kid, he knew exactly. I mean, did he have to be socialized? Get up and brush your teeth. Well, the conclusion they came to, yes, he did. Just like us. He had to learn what to do 
and he had to learn how to behave, and he had to be, uh, go through a moral development. Socialization is an, another way to say part of that, at least. So, you know, all of us do. And if he does and did, we can. Amen. All right. Café.